Thanks, Wisdom. Thanks for that reading. Hey, today's a beautiful day. It's a special day. God's just like showing his handiwork here in the mountains. Stunning. I appreciate that. It's also a special day because today is my dad's birthday. That's right. Dad, I know you watch me, and I know that uh, you're watching right now, and I just want to say up in Oregon, happy birthday to you. I love you, Dominic. And my dad's the original OG there. You know, he's like the original James Dean, Italian style kind of guy. And he's 88 today. So dad, I love you and happy birthday. Uh, today is special on some other counts as well. First, it's the first Sunday of Lent, as uh, you've already kind of picked up. And Lent is a season in which the church has traditionally prepared itself for what's called Holy Week. Holy Week, uh, the two most preeminent days in Holy Week are Good Friday, in which Jesus died on the cross, and Easter Sunday, in which he rose from the dead. So this is, this is the high point of the church's life, is Holy Week. And we get ready for that traditionally by putting off some things and putting on some things. We put off things that are unhelpful for us. Maybe it's our sugar consumption, or maybe it's our little trips to Mickey D's that have gotten out of hand. Or, you know, maybe it's, you know, our time, you know, uh, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And, uh, and then what we do is we put something on in its place. So maybe we make a habit of, like, pausing when we first get, get a little early to the office and pause and pray for your coworkers. You know, or maybe it's, uh, you know, you take a time in your day, maybe it's your commute, or maybe there, you have a little time where you typically fill it with social media and just turn that into a time of praise. I'm just going to spend this time just, you know, I'm just going to focus on Christ. I'm going to sing some praise songs here um, or maybe you take that money you save from not going to Mickey D's and you decide to help out with some bed sheets, you know, for um, Union Rescue Mission. So there's lots of ways. So that's what I, we want to encourage you to do during this season of Lent. Uh, secondly, it's, it's significant today because this is the end, this is the last Sunday of our Abide series. It's been a really good series, hasn't it? I know, man, it's been a good series. And uh, yeah, oh my gosh, it's been a good series. So, you know, the whole series has been focused on Jesus here inviting his disciples in John 15 to enter into a deep, connected relationship with him. And he invites us to abide in him. And so we've been talking about what are the elements of that? What are the practices that help us to abide? And so today I'm going to conclude our series by adding one final element for abiding. And so that's where we're going today. And I want to start it off with a little thought experiment. Imagine, if you will, that we had a time machine. And imagine that we could put you in that time machine and we could ship you back 200 years, or not 200 years, to 200 BC, to a place, a little town in Syria, um, a little Jewish town in Syria. And imagine that you spoke Aramaic, which is what Jews spoke during that time period. And you arrive in this small town in Syria, 200 BC, and you notice immediately that there's a rush going along in the town. There's, people are hustling and bustling, right? And you're just watching this go on. There's an excitement. There's anticipation. It's springtime. You're like, oh, what's going on? And then suddenly the streets just empty out. So you walk over, you knock on a door, and a young girl, we'll call her Rachel, invites you in. And you walk with her into a room where there the whole family is, and they are eating a meal. And she brings you to the whole family, and you say, what are you doing? And she says, this is one of our special days. We call it Pesach. Pesach, what does that mean? Passing over. It's the time when, and then, before she can finish, the older man, who is actually at the head of the table, starts to read an old story of the Jewish people about when they were slaves in Egypt. 
And this is what he says. We, the people of Abraham, the people called by God to be the light of the world, we went down into Egypt and we were slaves. And our God brought us us up out from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He condemned the Egyptians, but when he saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb on our doorpost, he passed over us and brought us through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he gave us his law and brought us into our promised land. After this kind of overview, the meal begins, and then it gets much more detailed. You go into the plagues, you know, you talk about the shedding of the blood and how you put it on the doorposts. You even talk about how the people were in a rush and they couldn't even leaven their bread and they had to bring this unleavened bread with them on their journey. And so you're sitting there and you're, you're listening to this whole thing. And at, at one point, the, the younger brother of the girl who lets you in, uh, because mom is there, you know, nudging him, he reads this. Why is this night different from all other nights? And then the father, who's also reading from something, responds, because this is the night when our God, the Holy One, blessed be he, came down to Egypt and rescued us from the Egyptians. At this point, you whisper to the girl, but this isn't quite right. This happened a long time ago. And she whispers back, yes, it is right. This is the same night and we are the same people. We are Israel, the people God loved and chose and promised to rescue. We are the people who came out of Egypt. At this point, the head of the family lifts the bread in the cup and repeats these words. The bread that our fathers ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. Take and eat. The cup to life, the cup to freedom. Let us drink. After the eating and the drinking continue, you continue and you whisper back, Don't you mean it was your great, 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 great grandparents that went through this? And she whispers back, yes, of course, but that's not the point. We are part of them, part of the whole of God's people, God's family. We are the family that came out of Egypt. We are the same family having the same meal in every Jewish home everywhere in the world tonight. This meal connects us to them and makes us one. But why do you keep doing it, you whisper back? It happened so long ago. How can it even be meaningful? And she says, it tells us things about who we are, about God loving us and God rescuing us. And when we celebrate Pesach, Passover, we remind ourselves that we are God's freedom people. He rescued us and he wants us to be free. Now, I want to ask you, to move uh, to a different time. We'll get back in our time machine. And I want us to move forward two centuries, 400 miles south to Jerusalem, where another Pesach meal is being held, and it's being held in secret. And the reason it's being held in secret is the person who's officiating this Pesach meeting is Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. And he is in danger of being arrested by the authorities. And the reason he's in danger of being arrested by authorities is that the Romans fear an insurrection. And what better time for an insurrection than on the feast that celebrates the overthrow of the oppressors of Israel? And what more suspicious person than this popular preacher from Nazareth to lead it? So imagine, if you will, that you are now joining this evening. What do you see as you watch it unfold? The meal seems to be the same. 
Uh, it's just like the other Passover meal. You have the same foods in the Seder plate. You have the same words that are spoken at the same time. But then, shockingly, there's something that happens that's never happened before. In the middle of the meal, as Jesus lifts the bread to repeat the familiar words, the bread that our fathers ate when they came out of the land of Egypt, Jesus goes off script. And he says this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the familiar place with the words for the cup, the cup to life, the cup to freedom, Jesus lifts his cup and continues off script. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As the disciples eat the bread and drink from the cup, you look at their faces and you register absolute shock. And why are they shocked? Because Moses in Exodus 12 said this was going to be an ongoing commemoration that should be practiced over and over, and it has been practiced the same way over and over and over again. And now Jesus in his audaciousness, has changed the focus of the meal. And he's focused it on himself. He's focused this meal on consuming his body and his blood. Drinking his blood? Every Jew knows that Jews don't drink blood. And a new covenant, sins forgiven? Everybody knew. All the prophets had said that God would one day eventually make a new covenant with Israel, just like he made a covenant with them when he brought them out of Egypt. That he'd one day forgive Israel's sins once and for all, redeem them from their troubles. But how on earth did these promises have anything to do with the body and the blood of Jesus? You follow the disciples from this unbelievable meal to an unbelievable night. You're at a distance, and then you too also eventually fall asleep in the garden. And then, like the disciples, you awake to the soldiers, the torches, the arrest, and all you can remember is just running and running and running. Finally, I wanna invite you to one more, one more event. I invite you to fast forward, not centuries, but days. The Gospels tells us it was on a Sunday morning that the women went to the tomb and there they found that the tomb was empty and an angel messenger proclaimed to them, he is not here for he has risen. And then shortly after, later in the day, there's two disciples uh, that were traveling to a town not, not too far outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And as they're traveling along, they are joined by a stranger and this stranger begins to talk to them. They get this big conversation. And this stranger walks them through the scope of the Old Testament and shows how everything that has happened really lines up with what the scriptures had promised, that the Messiah actually would have to go through this kind of suffering and that actually Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And then after arriving at Emmaus, after this walk, they invite this stranger to join them for a meal. And as they join with the stranger. The stranger takes bread and he breaks it and he blesses it. 
he Eucharists it. He gives thanks. That's what Eucharist means, to give thanks. He gives thanks. And when he does that, immediately their eyes were opened and they recognized that this stranger is Jesus of Nazareth. And at that moment, he vanishes from their sight. Jesus was with them the whole time, but they only recognized his presence in the breaking of bread. They run all the way back to Jerusalem, about seven miles. They were cooking. They ran really fast. They find the disciples, all 11 of them gathered. Many people think in the same room where they had the final supper with Jesus. They're gathered there, kind of in hiding, kind of what's going on. And they tell them this amazing story that they have seen Jesus. And while they're telling the story, lo and behold, who shows up in the room but Jesus? And the gospel account tells us that the disciples are terrified. Many think it's a ghost. And Jesus has to calm them down. He shows them his scars. He assures them that it is him. He says, peace to you. And then once he has calmed everybody down, Luke 21 records that he ate with them. Fast forward another week. A week later, guess what day? First day of the week. The disciples are get together again. And guess who appears again on the first day of the week? Jesus. He eats and drinks with them. As Peter in Acts 10.41 declares, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And so there's been these back-to-back -back appearances, Easter Sunday, and then the next Sunday, where Christ joins with the disciples to feast with them, the risen Lord. And the church realizes Jesus wants to keep meeting on Sundays with us. And he keeps wanting to fellowship with him. He wants to join with us in the breaking of this bread, which reminds us of his sacrifice. And so the church starts meeting on what the Apostle John calls in Revelation 1.10, the Lord's Day. In order to practice what Paul says in the text that was just read, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Day on the Lord's, the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. The church comes together every Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day to meet with our living Lord and to break bread with him. And since that time, the church has not stopped celebrating that meal. We are one with the disciples. There's been an unbroken link to that day that happened to this moment right here to celebrate this. I start with this background today because I want to close our Abide series with a very strong claim. And this claim is this, that arguably the most important of all things, now listen to the strong claim, arguably the most important of all things for us learning to abide in Jesus, to experience a deep and rich connection is to regularly come together as God's people to celebrate with our living Lord his sacrifice through the breaking of bread. What Luke calls the breaking of bread, what Paul calls the Lord's Supper, what the church is called the giving of thanks and communion, which means to fellowship deeply. And who are we communing with? Our Lord. As was read this morning, um, Paul reminds the Corinthians the gist of the Lord's Supper in the heart of that passage that 
wisdom so wonderfully read. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in the time that we have left, because I've, I've made, I'm making an argument here, right? Did you hear it? I'm making a claim and I'm making an argument. In the time that we have left, I want to draw out four reasons why this meal that Jesus gave us, what Paul calls the Lord's Supper, what Luke calls the breaking of bread, what is also called communion or Eucharist, it is critical, why it is critical for maintaining this deep connection with Jesus, why it's critical for abiding in Jesus. And I'm going to start off with, uh, and by the way, they're all P's. I couldn't resist. They just work so well. When, when, when uh, pastors, by the way, when they give you like, uh, you know, different points in the sermon, they all start with the same letter. It's really for them. Okay. I feel that way. I'm like, okay, I can't forget that there's four P's. Like I got that. All right. So there's four P's. And the first one here is, is it connects us to his pain. It connects us to his pain. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And what is Jesus doing? We've already seen Jesus is, is wrapping, the context is Jesus has wrapped the Passover feast around himself. He's focused it in on himself. Um, and what is that story? It's the story of how God passes over. Who gets passed over and who doesn't get passed over? Well, the people of Israel get passed over, which means somebody didn't get passed over. And who didn't get passed over? That's the Egyptians. Uh, the Bible says that the Egyptians uh, experienced something that God decided to pass over with Israel. And that was, what was that? That was the angel of death. In other words, judgment came upon the Egyptians for their oppression. And, and what is that judgment? Well, the Bible says that there is a judgment day coming. And that day is a day in which God will put everything to right. Because of what Egypt had done, though, God decided to go ahead and allow an intrusion of divine judgment from the future to break in. And the angel of death was a sample of the judgment day scrolled forward. Now, this wasn't because the Israelites were so amazing. Okay, <laughs> read the Old Testament. The Israelites are not so amazing. They have... This, you know, I mean, they, they just, they mess things up continuously. Not that we're any better, okay? But the Israelites are people just like the Egyptians. They're all people. What is the difference for the Israelites? Well, the Israelites, the difference is, is that God tells them in Exodus 12 that they were to take a lamb, a pure lamb. They were to take the blood from that lamb and they were to put it on the doorposts of their home and they were to roast the lamb and eat it. And then, when the angel of death comes, they take shelter under the blood of the lamb. The lamb dies instead of anyone inside that home. And so when the angel of death sees the blood on the doorpost, he passes over those sheltering in the blood. The prophets knew that those sweet, woolly quadrupeds, as cute as lambs can be, we're never going to erase sin. The whole point of the sacrificial system is to keep pushing the sin forward, keep pushing it forward until the true lamb 
would finally come and once and for all take away this sin. This is why Isaiah says, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Those lambs didn't take away Israel's sin. They represented that someone would need to come eventually who would once and for all remove sin. And on that night, a night unlike any other night, Jesus, when he raised that bread and that cup, he's saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying, listen, I'm the main course. It's through me and my sacrifice that once and for all, you will enter into this deep relationship with God. It's through me and my sacrifice that you are going to find finally the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it connects us with his pain. And I could go on, there's a whole, there's so much to be said about Christ's sacrifice. But if I can insert something here, there's a mystery to this, to what Christ did. We will never entirely understand what it means for the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in eternal union to experience the kind of fracture that Christ cries out in dereliction, why have you forsaken me? The closest we can come is when you've had to forgive somebody and you know you have no other recourse and you have to swallow something that is so painful, but there's no other way forward. And the story of the Bible is this, that God had to solve a problem within God's self. God's justice and love had to be reconciled. And the only way it could be reconciled was if God took upon God's self a pain that is unimaginable for us. That is really the heart of it. Crucifixions were relatively common. The Bible's telling us there's something deeper going on, something that's so unfathomable that God had to go through, and he did that so that we could be brought in, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be accepted. So it connects us with his pain. Next P, it connects us with his people. One of the marks of families, they eat together. I gave that illustration of the Shabbat meal, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Passover meal. You know, this connects us together. And, and, you know, if you're family, you get a seat at the table and you get to eat. That's part of the deal with being family. And so this meal signals that we are part of a new family. We're part of Jesus' family. And how do we get into that family? There's only one way. We recognize that we are sinners in need of grace that we all need the Lamb of God to take away our sin and for his life to be our life, to be nourished by his flesh, to feast upon the Lamb. Now, if we come, become God's people, based totally on what Christ has done, that levels all of us. This is the amazing thing about the church. The qualifications in order for us to become his people is we all have to recognize at a fundamental level, we bring nothing to the table to be a part of this club. It's all gift. All of us. This is, I don't know if there's another community like this. 
How do you get into this club? You need to acknowledge that you have nothing that enables you to get in this club. It has to be gift. The church is an amazing thing. If we become the people of God based totally on what Christ has done, it means that there's no privileged group in the church. It doesn't matter what your race or gender, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter, you know, you, 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 there's no, you know, identity marker that can give you some kind of leg up in the church. We all come to God on the basis of his grace. And this, by the way, is why Paul is so upset in this passage that, Corinthian, that was read in Corinthians. You know, uh, Paul reinserts and gives them the gist of what happens in communion. But before that and after that, Paul is irate. And, uh, you know, I don't know about the ESV on this one, but, you know, Paul says some things that are easy to miss. Paul says, I think I've heard correctly. In other words, like, I, I, I can't believe this is what I'm hearing. And then he says, when you come together, you do not practice the Lord's Supper. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, whatever it is you're doing, that's not the Lord's Supper. Okay? Paul even goes even farther. He's like, look, do you even know how to discern the body and blood of Jesus? In other words, what Paul's saying is like, you don't even get it. You have no idea what you're doing. You're a walking contradiction. And why? Why was that? Because they had to invent the potluck. <laughs> Seriously. What, what does it say happened? For in the first place, when you come together to church, I hear that there are divisions among you in eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So in order to understand what it was like back then, we have to first off imagine that it's nothing like this. You're meeting in a home. You're meeting in the evening. Okay, it's the end of a meal when this would be celebrated, just like the original, okay, first supper, right? I call it the first supper because the first time we have that kind of supper, right? It's right in the middle of the meal where this takes place. And here's what's happening. There's all these divisions. The Corinthian church is a mess. There's egos involved. There's all kinds of, you know, politics. And there's certain, I know, I side with this person. I side with that. There's all kinds, it's just a mess, and all this gets played out when it comes time for them to have the bread and the cup. And they're having this meal, okay, but everybody brings their own food. You know, to bring your own food, bring your own communion food, you know, your own meal, okay? And what happens? Well, if you're rich, you're just like dining out, man. Whew. You're, you know, you're bringing all the, I don't know, you know, I don't know, you're, you're eating from the velvet turtle. I don't know what the restaurant would be, you know, but, um, you know, and you're bringing like all kinds of amazing wine and you're just gorging and you're even getting you're like, you're getting a little lit. You're having a good time. Okay. But guess what? As soon as, as soon as you've done the necessary things, you're getting out of there because you have a lot of conflict with people in the church and you don't want to hang out when it's all done. So as soon as you've kind of said the, taken the, the, you know, the ceremonial bread and cup, you're out of there. You don't want to talk to this person. You've got a beef with that person. You're out. And then you have poor people there. They don't have the resources. Some are even actually hungry. They're sitting there like going, okay, I guess I'm not family. Cause at family, you actually get to eat when you come to the table. How weird would it be to have a meal with your family and say, oh, by the way, you're not eating tonight. Like, what, what, what in the world? And that's why Paul is irate. Paul's saying, do you realize that what you're doing is making a mockery of the Lord's Supper? This is a meal that is to make us one. This remind us that there's only one way into this party, and it's by sheer grace. And through your pride and your arrogance, you're making divisions and looking down at other people, and you have grudges that you're holding on to. 
And here's the thing Paul's saying, don't you realize if God held a grudge against you, you would be toast. And you're going to hold a grudge against somebody while you eat the elements that remind you that it's nothing but grace? What in the world? This is, I mean, Paul, I, I don't think Paul has harsher words for any church than he has right here. He says, don't you realize that you're under the judgment of God right now? And what is that judgment? It isn't that they've lost their salvation, right? He even says that, you know, you, God is doing something so you won't be judged with the world. But he's doing something. He's, he is disciplining you right now. He's trying to wake you up. Sometimes God will bring bad things into somebody's life who's a believer in order to wake them up. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. This, this is why some of you are sick and ill. Some of you even died. God's trying to wake up the Corinthian church. And so Paul is saying, when you take these elements, you are proclaiming something. You know, this, you know philosophers call it a speech act. You know, that's a famous speech act. Like a wedding vow is a speech act. You know, when you say I do, you're actually saying a whole bunch of things, <laughs> you know. But there's certain things. You want to put a ring on somebody's hand at a wedding ceremony. That's a speech act. You're doing something that actually says a ton. And sometimes our actions speak much louder than words. And Paul's saying, how on one hand can you speak so loudly about the, the you know, <laughs> unmerited grace of God and then turn around and be so grudging and unforgiving towards others. Okay, so before we move on from this, I just want to say practically, what does this mean? And here, it's very simple. We need to be ruthless in eliminating any kind of division in our church family. We need to be ruthless about it. It's very serious. If you have a beef with somebody, if you're carrying bitterness or grudge, uh, number one, don't eat this because you'll be a walking contradiction. But the best thing is, is to repent, to ask God to help you to understand his amazing forgiveness so that you can then forgive those in your life and then come forward and eat it wholeheartedly, right? But if you're not willing to repent, do not eat this meal because God might discipline you. Okay, it connects us with his pain and with his people. It connects us with his presence. It connects us with his presence. The Lord's Supper is not just about, you know, uh, believing in some theological theory. It's about a deep communion, about a connection with God. And now remember the, the Passover meal I started off with? The whole point of that meal was for people to realize that they are actually the same people of Israel, that, it that they were the ones that passed through the Red Sea, that they were the ones that God delivered. And when we eat this meal... We are part of an unbroken link. We are with the disciples on that night. We are them. We are the disciples of Jesus. And so when we eat this meal, we have to see him giving us the bread and saying, this is my body, looking us in the eyes. This is for you. What was it like to sit at the table and have Jesus look you in the eyes and say, this is my body, this is for you? And we have to see him giving us the cup that represents the blood that he is going to painfully shed and say, I'm doing this for you, to cleanse you, to make you mine. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm giving myself to you. And when he said, this is my body, of course, we immediately, believe me, I'm a theologian, I know, we immediately jump into a host of issues, right? Right? What does this mean? 
There is the high view, the Roman view. This is the view that, uh, you know, that basically this is the literal body of Jesus. It's not symbolic. There's the low view, which says this is just recalling what Jesus said. We're just recalling it. Don't get carried away. Um, you know, and, and so there's two different views. You know, the Roman view is that, that this is a, a ex corpus duum. This is the literal body and that when you eat this bread and drink this, you are literally, automatically, immediately receiving the saving grace of God. And if you want eternal life, you better eat this. Protestants say, no, 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 this is symbolic. He's not saying this is literally my body. Rather, it represents my body. It symbolizes what you're about to do. Let me come clean. I'm a Protestant, okay? But I'd like to point out some problems with both views. First, the Roman view. When Jesus says, this is my body, there's a problem. On the night that he said that, as he was holding the bread in the cup, he had not died yet. His blood had not been shed yet. And so when he says, this is my body and blood, he must have been speaking in some kind of representational way because he had not died. His blood had not yet been shed. And therefore, it's not literally eating the bread in the cup for salvation. In fact, if you read the Bible, there's all kinds of places that say you don't need to do anything with your mouth to be saved. Well, you can proclaim Jesus and, and be saved. You can believe in your heart and be saved. There's, there's never this kind of statement that to be saved, you have to eat this. You see other statements that say you just need to believe and call upon the Lord. However, the mere symbolism view also has problems. You have places like John 6, where the crowds are, are coming together for Passover, okay? Read that. Read John 6. It's like, oh, this is all about communion. They're coming together for Passover, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then people are offended. Some people just stomp off. You know, what? drink his blood. This is crazy. We're Jews. What are you talking about? And then there's some people that stick around. It's like, Jesus, did you mean this literally? Like, we have to, like, you know. And, and John even says that, that Jesus knew that they were disgruntled by what was said. The ones that stayed, they're like, oh, what, how are we going to deal with this? This guy's talking like crazy. And then Jesus says this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm not talking about the flesh. I'm not talking about the flesh. The flesh means nothing. My words are spirit and life. Jesus seems to be alluding to the Lord's Supper. And when they ask him about it, he's saying, what I'm talking about is you feeding on my words, feeding on what I've done, knowing who I am through my spirit, that becoming a living truth in your life. In other words, don't just know that I'm doing this for you in an arid academic sense. Drill down into that. Feed on that. Don't just ascend to my words. Don't just ascend to the idea that I love you. Don't just ascend to these ideas, but feed on my words. Drink my words until they become part of you, until they take life and they sprout up. And this is this business of remembrance. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance. And this is a very unfortunate word, by the way. Remembrance in contemporary English has the idea of recalling, like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for me. Okay. That's great. Glad you did it. 
The best way to get back to the, the meaning of this word remembrance is to think of a serial killer. What does a serial killer do? He dismembers, okay? Yeah, creepy. Takes all the body parts and chops them up, okay? Hands and fingers and you name it. So what does it mean to remember in this sense? It means to take things that are disconnected and graft them in so that there's a living, organic life. And that's what we are called to. We're called to remember. Means that we are called to chew on these words, what Christ has done, to enter back into that moment with him, realize we are those disciples such that life begins springing up in us. So that we become regrafted into Christ so that we abide afresh in what Christ has done. We abide afresh. Feed on my words. Drink them in. Remember me, and I will remember you. We will be one. We will abide together. I in you, and you in me. And so how do you know if you're remembering? How do you know if you're remembering? Well, if you come to the table and you're filled and rocked with anxiety because of the circumstances in your life, you cannot remember that the second person of the Trinity has taken you up as his own and loves you fully and has given you eternal life and at the same time hold out whatever that is that's troubling you as being tantamount. And so when we remember, we have to choose either to hold on to whatever it is that's bothering us or to grasp anew that we are going to be okay because we abide in the love of God. That's what remembering looks like. So in John 6, Jesus is promising that in a unique way, unavailable in other places, that this table offers us a way of drinking in the gospel uniquely. And and so when we do that in the spirit, through the Spirit's uh, work, and we do so in the company of the living Lord who is with us this morning, we are remembered and we remember. Finally, it connects us to his plan. And this is, uh, <laughs> this is amazing. It says, when you eat or drink this, you proclaim his death until he comes. In this action, you're actually speaking something. You know, it's words that, it's actions that say something. And when you eat and drink this, you're actually proclaiming his death until he comes. Doing it says he died and he's going to return. And what do we know is going to happen when he returns? What's he going to bring when he comes? Jesus is going to bring another meal. Jesus is all about eating with us. And Revelation tells us Blessed are those who are at the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is going to bring us supper. That is our future. You, know, you read about the world Christ is bringing, um, and it is an amazing world. It's an amazing world where pain is gone, where everything is set right. And most importantly, it's a world in which we will no longer have those moments of just longing and ache for things to be different. We will be full and satisfied, finally. My wife's a foodie, okay? I'm blessed by that because we have amazing food in the Kavola house. Kenya's constantly looking at recipes and fantasizing about how to make stuff. I'm like, God bless you. I'm glad you like that. I benefit. But it also means she likes to go to nice restaurants. 
And so sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a good husband. This is her love language. I'm not happy we're going to do this. So we went to a really expensive restaurant this last year. Some of you will stop tithing if you find out how much it cost, okay? <laughs> we went to a really expensive restaurant. And right before this course unfolded, they gave us something called an amuse-bouche. It means to kind of wake up your mouth. This amuse-bouche was like, I guess technically it was chicken soup, but it was a chicken soup you've never tasted before. Like we were licking that little bowl they gave us. We're like, please, what's next? It awakened us. It got us excited. We realized, oh my gosh, can you imagine what's about to come? This is our amuse-bouche. This is to awaken us, to help us to see that, you know what? Eye has not seen and ear has not heard all that he's prepared for us when we join in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of the Lord of the Rings, um, not the movie. Some of you are going to be like, where was this in the movie? The book of the Lord of the Rings has this spot where Pippin is in the city and is sieged by orcs and he's going to die. He's terrified. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And right at his most terrifying moment, he hears in the distance a horn. I think it's the horns of Rohan. And when he hears that horn, it turns out that that tells him that there are knights riding to his rescue. Many of these knights fight even to the death, but what they do is they break the siege and Pippin is rescued. And in the book, not the movie, we're told that the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance and not break into tears. Why was that? It's because that horn reminds him of his salvation. The book tells us that even when he was grumpy, if he heard that horn, he could not be grumpy anymore because it was a tangible, palpable reminder of the sacrifice that was made for him so that he could be alive. This is our horn of salvation. The Lord's Supper is a horn coming from a distance, a palpable thing that we can see and feel and taste that connects us to our salvation. And as we come together on the Lord's day, in the Lord's presence, to experience the Lord's Supper, we do so asking Jesus to remember us as we remember him, proclaiming that through his pain, he is present with us. We are his people. We are part of his plan. And when we engage in this palpable, visible, physical practice, we are transformed. And it is a moose-bouche of what it will be one day to sup with our Lord when we will once again be able to see him as he is. Praise be to God. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you're with us now. You're with us as your people. You're with us in a special way to fellowship with us over this meal. Lord, we pray that we, as your community, will live a deeper and deeper life of abiding in you. Abiding in you through times where we have carved out a secret place and abiding in you through times in which we have 
set limits and abiding in you by listening to your word and abiding in you by seeing your glory in creation and abiding in you by sitting down and eating with you in this dinner. Thank you, Lord. We'll never understand everything it costs you to grant us our salvation, but we pray, Lord, that you'll continue to transform us as a result of it. Amen.